This week's reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. And we know that in all things, God works for those, works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns Christ Jesus, who died More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray as we look at this uh, fabulous, fabulous couple of verses together. Our Father God, we thank you that your word is true and we pray that you would help us to learn what it means to trust you as we, uh, as we learn of your plans and your purposes for us. And Father, most of all, would you give us a clearer view of who the Lord Jesus is and what he has done that we might be filled with confidence of your good purposes for us. Amen. Uh, my dad's a very practical man, he's an aeronautical engineer, and the first time I went to fly on a plane, aged about 12, he decided he didn't want me being a nervous flyer. And being an aeronautical engineer, he called me into his study and said, I'm going to explain the physics of flight to you so that you're calm and relaxed on the plane. And he picked up a piece of paper, usually he'd then get a pen and draw equations I had no understanding of, but this time he just picked up the piece of paper and did this. Increase the airflow over the higher surface of the wing and the lower surface of the wing rises. That's flight. Simples. (laughs) If you're scientifically minded, I imagine that really helps you relax and feel calm and confident on a plane. However, (laughs) I've worked out a different and I think better way of whether I can relax on a plane. And it's basically about the pilot. I've boiled it down over the years, and I now know what the ideal pilot looks like. If I'm going to feel relaxed when I get on the plane, he needs to be older than me, and the pilot needs to have some grey hair. I don't want some young idiot flying a plane. (laughs) Not when I'm in it. He needs to be older than me, he needs to have some grey hair, but he needs to be in shape. I don't want him sort of conking out halfway through the flight. He's got to be older, a bit of grey hair, in shape. He's also got to be ugly, because I don't want him distracted by flirting with the stewardesses all flight. (laughs) So you can be calm and relaxed. Basically, your ideal pilot is an ugly George Clooney. (laughs) If he's flying your plane, you're happy. 
What about life? What about life? See, these guys have made a public declaration that they're going to follow Jesus. That they're going to put their trust in his word and obey it. And quietly, I wonder whether a number of us wouldn't question that decision. Some of us are not at all convinced, to be honest, that Christianity is a good way to live your life. It is hugely unpopular in our culture and getting more so. They're probably going to get laughed at by people they know, considered unscientific, bigoted, foolish. It's also very difficult to live in a way which is different from the standards of our culture. Some of us think, what are they playing at? Others of us, it's a slightly different issue. Uh, We probably call ourselves Christians, but we found life is hard, painful, and disappointing. And for ourselves, we have questions about whether it was a good idea, whether it's really working out, if I can put it that way. Well, when you get on a plane, you're not really trusting physics, to be honest. You're trusting a pilot. And when you get baptized, when you become a Christian... You're not trusting theology, you're trusting the character of God. And the passage that we read tonight is not a passage which uh, contains evidence, if you like. Uh, This is the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. It's not a passage like that, it's a a pilot passage. It's a passage that tells us about the character of our God and tells us, can I trust him with my life? Can I trust him to, to do what he's promised? Can I trust that if I, if I get baptized tonight, that God will get me safely home? Can I trust that life will go well if I follow this God? And that's why we're looking at this passage from Romans. Romans is a, a letter written in the first century by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in Rome. The clue is in the title. And at this point, in chapter 8... Paul is writing to assure those Christians of a couple of things. And the main thing he says is, you've not backed the wrong horse. When you turn to follow Jesus, you weren't making a colossal mistake. You can trust this God. You can trust that he will get you safely home as he's promised. And you can trust that he will look after you in all the ups and downs and ins and outs of this life. Even when life seems horribly confusing. Even when it looks to have gone completely wrong. You can trust this God. Now, Christians do uh, sometimes get bogged down in debates over these verses, but they were not written uh, to prompt theological debate. They were written to provide real encouragement. And so we're not going to really get into the debates. We're just going to look at what it is that God says to encourage us tonight. Uh, You've got three points um, on your sheet to show you where we're going. Firstly, God works all for our good. God works all for our good. We're just going to look at uh, verses 28 to 30. There's a lot in them. Uh, I told you last week that the 10 verses last week had 12 talks from Martin Lloyd-Jones. The three verses this week, 18 talks. I kid you not. Uh, Don't worry, we're not going to be that long. 28, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That is an extraordinary statement. Just take a moment to think back over your life times of pain and disappointment and confusion. And yet God says, in all things, I'm at work for the good of those who love me. 
Even the painful, crushing, disappointing things that happen to us. Even the foolish, sometimes wicked things that we ourselves do. Somehow, in God's hands, these things are an agent for our good, for our blessing. It's a breathtaking statement for God to make at the beginning of this passage. Now, he's not saying all things are inherently good. The Bible is very clear that all things are not good. Earthquakes, famine, unemployment, racism, bigotry, poverty, relationship breakdown are not good things. They're not even neutral things, you know, just part of what life is like in this world. Just what happens when atoms collide. They are bad, according to the Bible. They were not part of the original creation that God made. And they won't be part of the new creation when Jesus returns. All things are not good. It doesn't say that. And neither does it say all things naturally work for good. You know, life is not just one long benign school lesson where things happen and it's instantly obvious to us what the output is and why they're happening. And everything makes sense, like a Disney movie. In a two-hour time slot, everything makes sense in our lives. It's not like that. It's not like that at all. The promise here is that if you love God... If you entrust yourself to Jesus Christ, then you'll find God the Father will be at work to bring good from even bad things. It doesn't happen naturally. God has to work to do it. But God is committed to that task. And he is relentless in carrying out what he has promised to do. Okay, what is uh, God's definition of good, though? It's pretty important to know that. And how can I know whether this is a reliable promise? Well, those two questions really get answered as the passage goes on. But before we even get there, at the start, we find just in this first phrase, there is a, a little warning for David Cameron, and there is a big encouragement for you and for me. The little warning for David Cameron is that he is not in charge of the country. Somebody else is. And I'm not talking about Nicola Sturgeon. It is God... <laughs> God is in charge of the vibration of every little atom and of the outcome of general elections. We have a God who is in control, according to the Bible. And more than just being in control, the God who is in control is at work to do good, to bring blessing, to turn evil into goodness. And he is relentlessly working out that purpose through all of life. This is not a guarantee that bad things won't happen to us. There will be uncertainties. Worse than that, there'll be disappointments. Worse than that, there'll be tragedies in all of our lives. But what it says is this. Look, there'll be times when all of us will know that life will cut us like a knife. We know that feeling. But what this passage assures us is that the knife is not wielded by a thug, a mugger, called fate. It's a scalpel wielded by a loving surgeon who is committed to do what is good for us. So we can trust him. Our father is at work. Okay, so what is this good that uh, we're told God is at work for? The second half of verse 28. Actually, let's come back to the start. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, it is worth all the pain, all the disappointment, all the struggle and all the confusion because God is using it to make you more like Jesus. Okay. 
what if I'm not so sure I want to be like Jesus? You know, Jesus, the beard, the sandals. Jesus who never had sex, lived in poverty, was described as a, a man of sorrows, who was so hugely unpopular that violently hateful enemies who racially and politically were at each other's throats, the only time they could ever agree Pontius Pilate, Herod, and the Jewish religious establishment was that Jesus had to die and die gruesomely. And I'm supposed to think it's all right that life is hard because I'm becoming more like Jesus. I'm not so sure I want to be like Jesus, many of us are thinking. I think about his life and I think that's not how I want my life to go. But what about when you stop thinking about his life and start thinking about your death? Do you want to be like Jesus then? Like Jesus who defeated death with all its grimness and its inescapable power and rose triumphant from the grave to a new life and will never die for all eternity. Like Jesus who has no shameful, selfish, degrading desires that he has to hide in his heart. Like Jesus who brings healing and peace and restoration to every relationship. Like Jesus who knows absolute perfect joy in his relationship with God the Father. Like Jesus who knows perfect contentment and wholeness and happiness in his existence. Like Jesus who lives for all eternity. Don't you want to be like him when you think about the future? You see, that is the good that God is at work to produce, the eternal good. Jesus is the template that God is working to transform us into the likeness of. Jesus with his courage, his honesty, his humility, his power, his control over nature, all of it, God is at work to transform us the way we are into the way that he is. That is his project you see, God is, uh, God is not at work. God's priority is not for our ease and comfort right now. That is not God's priority. And we'll get terribly confused and disappointed with God if we think that God's great priority is my comfort right now. God's priority is your eternal joy, your eternal happiness, your eternal delight. And that means making us more like Jesus. God, in that sense, is like a, a dentist. A dentist is quite happy sometimes to turn on that drill. You know that noise. Uh, Dentist is quite happy sometimes to tell you off. Why is it that they feel like, I'm I'm an adult. You're still telling, you need to stop drinking so many fizzy drinks. You're not my mother. But but they're strict and they cause you pain. A slight tingling, I think, is the way they describe it. Why? So that you get to eat with your own teeth for the rest of your life. A long-term benefit That's what the dentist cares about. They're quite happy to bring you short-term discomfort because they know you need it. And through all of life, God is at work chipping off the ugly corners, sanding down our rough edges, molding and polishing us so that we are ready to enjoy the wonder and the blessing of the kingdom of God. He is training us hard so that when we get there, we can enjoy it. Wonderful. Come back down to earth though. What possible role could the death of my friend in a car crash play in that? Or me getting multiple sclerosis? 
or being pathologically unlucky in love. How could any of those things have any possible purpose in me becoming more like Jesus? And the truth is, we're never told that we'll have knowledge of how this particular difficulty leads to that particular goodness. We're never told that we'll be able to to run that equation on earth or even afterwards. Instead, like I said, we're told all we need to know about the pilot. And very often I'll be confused. Why does the journey have to take me here? I really don't want to be here. But the Bible tells us again and again and drives deep into our heart the truth that this pilot can be trusted. And the question comes, when I don't understand why the journey has taken me here, do I trust me or do I trust God? Which is why the Bible's full of information about the character of God, so that when life is confusing, we're not destroyed. We can stand firm. We can live out the vows that we made on our baptism days and keep going. The truth is also that if you live as a Christian for not just years, but decades, you do start to see how this works out in bits and pieces. Not always, not fully. But many of us will know, who've been Christians for a while, that actually the thing that has most taught us to depend on God and grow in humility has been, well, my failures, my backsliding, my falling into sins I thought I was over. And the things that have taught me more than anything not to build all my hopes on this world, but instead to, to build my treasure in heaven, has been actually deep disappointment and frustration where I've been let down by this world. And actually brutal times of suffering and grief are the things that have softened me and made me gentler with other people and more understanding of their problems. There is value in our suffering and pain when it is in the hands of God. The journalist Malcolm Muggeridge wrote uh, towards the very end of his life, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've ever learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. In other words, if it were ever possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence, the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it too banal and trivial to be endurable. This, of course, is what the cross signifies. And it is the cross, more than anything else, that has called me inexorably to Jesus. All of which is good, I suppose, if it's true. And I think that really brings us to to the final verse, verse 30, where we, we start to see some assurance that God can do what he has said here. Verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This verse has been called the the golden chain, but actually it starts a little bit earlier. It starts in verse 28 with God calling us according to his purpose. Uh, We'll look at the detail um, in just a moment. But the big picture is the, the important thing to grasp, namely that God doesn't half save you. Those God saves, he saves to the uttermost. He saves completely. He saves eternally. God doesn't do a half job. No one gets lost along the way, not one. Let's look at the uh, the chain. It starts with foreknowing, we're told. He foreknew. That does not mean that God looked into his crystal ball in the past and worked out, oh, I see, ah, Jacob's going to put his trust in Jesus, so I'll call him. Uh, It's not saying that. It's a much stronger word, actually, in the Bible. Foreknow means uh, to choose to have a relationship with someone, to know or foreknow them in the Bible. 
We're familiar with the old uh, English euphemism. Uh, Adam, from the, from the King James, Adam knew Eve and they had a son. They didn't have a child because Adam was conscious of the existence of Eve. It required a bit more than that. And the word know means to enter into relationship with somebody. Uh, you see this very clearly, actually, in a, in a passage in the, in the prophet Amos. On page 918, Amos 3, verse 2, he says, uh, God says to, to the Israelites, You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for your sins. The word translated chosen there is the same word. It's no. Because they recognize that this, that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, you only have I known. Not, I'm not aware of any other tribes in the whole world. God's not stupid. But I chose you. I entered a relationship with you. And those God foreknew, he predestined. Which means God didn't have some sort of vague notion about saving people. He made a definite plan. And when God makes a plan, things happen. So God's thoughts shape reality. So when God makes a plan, the future just changes. Because he's God. Called. Again, there are two ways we use this word called. Uh, one way is the, uh, that poor man running across Richmond Park. Fenton! Fenton! Pursued by uh, watching his dog, ignoring him, pursuing the deer. For personal reasons, I do feel a, a certain amount of sympathy towards that poor man. But there, there is that sort of useless call. Completely futile. That is not the sense in which it's being used here or is used in the Bible. It's more the sense of there is a court trial, you're a witness, and you are called. That is, you will be there. (laughs) It is a summons. It carries authority, and it makes things happen. And those he called, he justified. Well, the Bible has lots of ways of describing the human predicament. Uh, So relationally, the Bible says we are cut off from God. There is God up there and there's me down here. Spiritually, the Bible says I'm basically dead. I don't have spiritual life naturally. And here Paul is speaking legally. And he says, legally, I'm guilty because of my rejection of God and the way that I love myself and selfishly fail to love other people the way I should. And God takes guilty people who he calls And he justifies them. That is, he declares us right. It's more than he just says something. He changes our status so that we go from being guilty to right, pure, holy, perfect in God's sight. He changes our status. The judge makes us right. And finally, glorified. Which means uh, he made us like Jesus in his glorious resurrection body. That's what that one word means. He made us like Jesus in his glorious resurrection body. And for once, grammar is genuinely exciting. I kid you not. Uh, Pedants of the world, this is our moment. Because you'll notice that the tense of all the verbs is past, which is understandable because all the other ones are things that happened in the past. But this one happens when Jesus returns. In other words, something in the future. But Paul hasn't made a mistake. Paul is making a point. He's saying, look, if God has chosen someone, if God has justified, declared them right through the forgiveness that comes in Jesus' death, if God has done that, it is so certain that they will be uh, glorified, that, that Jesus will bring them safely home and transform them. It is so certain that I can speak about it as a past tense event. That's what he's saying. I don't know if you've noticed that everybody's a hero these days. Uh, The word has just become so, so cheap. Um, You realize that on VE Day when the front of the papers at 
stories about that. And the back pages, it's talking about footballer who got his shorts muddy making a tackle. What a hero. Come on. Well, there was... um, there was a story about a genuine hero in the papers. Uh, I think his image will appear up here. A guy called um, Antonis de la Georgis, who is uh, um, that fine figure of a man, is a, is a Greek army sergeant. And a couple of weeks ago, I'm not sure if you saw the story in the papers, he was just finished the school run with his wife because he was off work that day and was having a coffee with her at a seaside cafe in Rhodes um, when they noticed a commotion out to sea. And a migrant boat from North Africa was foundering in heavy waves um, 100 or so yards offshore, 200 yards offshore, on dangerous submerged rocks, and it hit the rocks and basically smashed up a boat full of people who were desperate, exhausted, and couldn't swim. And they started to drown. And so he just dived in and swam out. And his hands and his feet got horribly lacerated in the rocks. He was pounded by the surf. But single-handedly, he dragged about 30 people out of the, the surf and rescued them. That's, uh, that's one lady that he's dragging out there. Now, he's a proper hero. He is a proper hero. But what did he do? He didn't stand on the shore shouting encouraging things. Over here, it's much nicer on the shore. Seriously, you won't drown if you can just get here. Come on, swim harder. Doggy paddle will do. Just keep coming. He didn't swim out to them and drag them away from the dangerous submerged rocks and say, okay, you can get to the shore on your own. He didn't paddle out and say, look, I'm going to teach you some really easy swimming strokes. Just follow me and you'll be fine. No, he swam out. He pulled people as they were drowning under the waves. He pulled their heads above the surface and he swam them back, carrying them on his own body. And then he deposited them on the shore with the rescuers. And this golden chain, as it's called in verse 30, this shows us a God who saves fully. A God who dives in and drags our, our drowning bodies back over, up to the surface and who brings us safely to shore. He's not a God who half saves us, who gives us a good start and then leaves us to get on with it. He is a God who fully saves us and it cost him his life. Okay, let's say that I like what I hear. This sounds like a good God. I'm a cynic. I'm a Londoner. How do I know I can actually trust that all this is true? It's an entirely reasonable question. It's a huge thing to say, I would like you to change the entire direction of your life and to follow Jesus. Why on earth would I be convinced that that's right? Well, we're told in verse 29 that uh, God's plan is to conform us to the likeness of his son, the Lord Jesus. That the Lord Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, Jesus is the template for us. And of course, as you look at Jesus' life, you do see evidence that God knows what he's doing. These are not empty promises. That God can be trusted to bring you safely home, and that God can be trusted to work good out of evil. You see, looked at from the outside, Jesus' life seems an absolute disaster. It looks like God cannot be trusted at all when you look at Jesus' life from the outside. And his friends and family certainly couldn't see any evidence of God at work and what was going on. Now, after three brief years of public ministry, what happens to Jesus? He's utterly rejected by people he's healed and taught and loved. He faces unfair accusations, he's unfairly convicted, and then he's brutally tortured to death on a cross. Which looks like an epic fail in the purposes of God. How can any good come from something that abhorrently wicked 
And how can you say God is trustworthy if the guy dies? You know, that's, that's the end of it. But of course, it turns out that that awful death was not a tragic accident, but the climax of all of God's plans and purposes. There's a reason that as Jesus breathes his last, he doesn't say, I am finished. He shouts, it is finished. And uh, preaching about this very thing, the Apostle Peter, a few years before Romans was written, says this in Acts 4 and verse 27. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this very city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The wicked plans of men just end up achieving the purposes of God. And God was doing more than just working for good in the death of Jesus. He was, doing, he was using the greatest evil of all time. That is creation. People rising up and murdering our creator God. He was using the greatest evil of all time to work the greatest good of all time. The salvation of all who would trust in this Jesus. Well, how does that happen? Because on the cross, Jesus didn't just die at our hands. He died in our place. Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserve. That means that we're guilty. And he took the punishment so that we could be declared right. So that we could take his place, his righteousness, his acceptance before God. But there's more. Not only was God working great, the greatest good through this evil, God was also working to get Jesus safely home. Because three days later... We find his death was not the end, and he rose to life, and 500 eyewitnesses saw him over the course of a month. God got him safely home. And what does all this mean for us as we step back? Uh, two things. Take paracetamol and trust God. Uh, it sounds a bit banal, but let me explain. Uh, there is a silly mistake that I think some people make when they read a, a passage like this. So if bad things that happen to me, um, God is in sovereign control over things, and if God is working good stuff out of all the bad things, then I shouldn't try and avoid bad things when they happen. No, bad things are bad, and there's nothing wrong with, with trying to escape from, from suffering. And when Christians get a headache, they take paracetamol. And when Bible-believing Christians see others suffering, whether it's the individual suffering of a friend or institutionalized suffering like slavery or poverty, Bible-believing Christians have rolled up their sleeves and got stuck in to help relieve suffering. International Justice Mission, uh, work right around the corner from here, rescuing people from sex slavery, the food banks that are being run all over this country, and a million acts of kindness... No, we, we understand that we are to, we are, we're not to embrace suffering, but we don't need to be devastated if we cannot escape or we cannot overcome suffering. Because we know this life is not the end. And we know that our God is at work for our good, even in our suffering, even in our pain, even in our struggles. He is at work for our eternal good through our earthly pain. And I may not be able to see uh, what particular good could come from this tragic mess. I may not be able to see what possible good could come from it. But I trust that if the God who can bring the salvation of the world from the unthinkable wickedness of the murder of Jesus Christ, 
That is a God I can trust when I don't understand things. If he can bring that much good out of that much evil, then we can trust him in the fog and confusion of our lives as we try to, as we try to work out why things are happening to us. So these verses, they say to Rianne and Jacob and Ying and Natalie, you're not fools. You're not fools. You can trust this God. This pilot will get you safely home. And he will look after you on the way. They encourage these four that God will keep them. And they ask the rest of us, as we face the the confusion and the, the good times and the bad times of life, they ask us, don't you want this God looking after you? Don't you want to be able to trust yourself to the care of this God? And as you face the certain prospect that one day all of us will die, don't you want to have put your trust in this God and in this Jesus who has risen again? Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have the promise that our lives are not meaningless and our suffering is not just pointless. We thank you that you are at work to bring good even out of evil. And thank you that we're not fools for thinking that before we see it in the life, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us, we pray, to trust you as we face the future. Confident that if you brought Jesus safely through the cross and the grave, then you can bring us through life and death to glory. Amen.